Welcome to Let's Talk Land, a weekly land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, and ownership, especially for real estate agents and realtors. Learn from the expert, guys, free land education. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant with the United Country Real Estate Sutton Properties, along with my co-host this morning, Teresa Martin. Good morning, Teresa. Hello. How are you today? I'm great. I hope you are. Right. Going to be, be gonna have a great show here for you today. I'm we ready. Got, we got Russell Riggs. This is his fourth time uh, coming on, so that means we've been doing this for four years, I guess. It's like the Saturday Night Live show, and this is Russell's the big, he is. <laughs> he's the one that just keeps coming back. That's it. <laughs> Buying or selling homes, land or farms, or want to auction your property in western Piedmont, North Carolina, or southern Virginia, just give us a shout, guys. We'll help you out. Our office is at 102 East Main Street next to BB&T Bank in downtown Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. And our company website is www.allsuttonproperties.com. This show is dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute, its staff and members, and our site's www.rlilan.com. Hey, guys, buying or selling, got to work with the experts. Go to RLI. We've got agents all over the country that are highly educated. There's about 1,600 of us, and there's about 500 accredited land consultants like myself with advanced degrees. Hey, our guest today is Russell Riggs. Welcome, Russell. Thank you, Lou. How are you? I'm doing great. I miss you. We had our land conference virtually again. I know. God, I really miss it. Yeah, the virtual is a poor substitute being in person absolutely and this is the fourth time being on our show so um, uh, welcome back does he get an award yeah he gets to talk to us today <laughs> we'll see anymore kind of a trophy or something yeah i think so all right well <laughs> see if we got it in the budget <laughs> russell's our senior policy representative at the national association of realtors and you're calling from I am calling from my home in Falls Church, Virginia, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. But the offices are in Washington, right? That's correct. Our, our, our uh, Washington, D.C. office is right right downtown, and, of course, we also have our office in Chicago as well. Sure, of course. And you've been with the National Association of Realtors for, what, 24 years now? 24. Yes, sir. Well, you're the one that needs the trophy from the <laughs> National Association of Realtors. <laughs> But, I got the scars to prove it too. Yeah, I bet. Golly, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you do it there, but uh, thank you for what you do. Just for our listening audience, your, Russell's job. I'll let you explain it better, but basically, you're the liaison for the land part of the Realtors Association, right? That's correct. Yeah, I advocate on behalf of uh, the members of the Realtors Land Institute. Of course, they care about what happens on the land and land use and land resources and of course property rights so i advocate for them um uh with congress congressional members of congress and um the federal agencies that are up here too and there's also other officers like yourself that handle the housing and the housing issues and the commercial oh, yeah. Yeah, and the commercial staff in uh in washington National Association of Realtors is, uh, you know, it's one of the big, it is the biggest professional trade association in the country. Uh, we have one of the, if not the largest PACs in the country. So we have a staff of about 200 uh, people who are in Washington, D.C., uh, and about 60 of those folks are devoted exclusively to um, influencing legislation and regulation related to real estate, uh, land, housing, and realtors. You're also involved in our global and business affairs groups, uh, national, uh, the NAR's resort and second home group, too. So you, you wear a couple hats. Yes, I sure do. Do you give us all equal time? <laughs> uh, of course. I mean, there are, you got to remember, there are only 24 hours in a day. But, yes. Everybody gets equal time. That sounds like a politician. You've been hanging around him too damn long. <laughs> well, I do a lot of that. i got to talk to him. You hold a bachelor's degree from Virginia Commonwealth University. God, what a great school. And a master's degree from Tufts. When I worked for Peter Max, the artist, uh, his uh, son Adam uh, went to Tufts. And what a great school that is. And then, of course, NYU. And 
I used to have a brownstone uh, floor through. Uh, I lived in New York for 10 years, 74 yeah. to 84, and uh, I could walk to NYU and, of course, Lincoln Center, just a beautiful part of the city and a great school as well. So yes, I, I wanted to talk a little bit before we get into your presentation, Russell, uh, about the Realtors Party. Uh, the National Association of Realtors actually hired their first lobbyist, according to our website, in 1973 is one of the largest trade associations and you stated that we are the largest now right yeah yeah we're the largest trade association in the country and our purpose is to kind of protect the property interests and promote viable business environments 2010 and 2011 nar ramped up its efforts at the state and local levels by low, uh, by uh, launching the realtors party initiative and that included grants and tools to help state and local Realtors Associations runs candidates for campaigns and implement small group and housing opportunity diversified programs and much, much more. Um, and <clears throat> we'll talk about RPAC here in a second, but as an only advocacy group in America that fights exclusively for home ownership, I didn't know that, uh, real estate investment, strong communities, and free enterprise system, the Realtor, Realtors Party is not focused on the right or left or even the middle of the aisle is focused on the issues and the matter of existing and future home ownership, um, which is our largest investment, right, in the country, land and home ownership? Yeah, absolutely. You I mean, know, that's we the wealth. found that um, uh, the best way to um, move forward with all of these issues, I mean, the American dream is home ownership. Right. And so that cuts across party lines. So we are not particularly interested in getting – uh, involved in, in partisan bickering. We support people who support our issues. And these issues cross, they're not liberal, they're not conservative, they're not right, they're not, not left, they're not red, they're not blue. If you are supportive of home ownership, property rights, land rights, we are going to support you. And so we found that approach to be extremely productive in moving forward legislation and regulation that supports those kinds of issues and, of course, helps our members in their jobs and in uh, helping consumers realize the dream of home ownership. Supporting the candidates and campaigns and engaging community outreach, the Realtors Party leverages the association's best assets at its grassroots networking about 1.4 million realtors today across the United States <clears throat> and territories and to work hard on behalf of America's 75 million homeowners and those who aspired one day to own property on their own. In recent years, our local level activities increased. The realtors have gained uh, political clout throughout the legislative victories in every corner of the country and the state and local uh, realtors association have expanded their uh, community and political uh, because of the Realtors Action Pact. And out of that, uh, it, we, we call it the uh, RPAC. Uh, and if you're a realtor, and this is not a real estate agent, that's an independent, but if you're a member of the National Association of Realtors, we encourage, and I'll say this right now, every realtor out there uh, that listens to this show needs to be contributing to RPAC. I've done it for years, and I teach it in my class and support it. And this is to support um, uh, local uh, elections uh, at the uh, city, town, urban areas, and also the state uh, uh, elections, and, um, and, and of course, the national elections. And it was interesting, um, this particular year, according to, to, to my research here, says our PAC remained the largest um, PAC with direct contribution to candidates and disbursement over $1.2 million to federal candidates national political committees in 2000 cycle. So 51% um, uh, of the 2020 federal races, 51% uh, went to the Democrat uh, running candidates and 49% went to the Republicans. So just like you said, Russell, we're an equal opportunity organization. Well, right. And you got to remember, Lou, things change so much in Washington from one year to the next in terms of who's in power, who's out of power. Um, you know, last year, 2020, the Republicans were in charge of the Senate. Now, Democrats are. Right. So, so we make our friends before we need them. 
that's why we have determined that the best approach uh, for you know our political dollars is to provide again provide resources to those members of Congress who support our issues, and that's why you see more money going, or that's why you see a pretty um, equal split between Democrats and Republicans. It's all because of our issues, and that's who we're going to support. It's all because of us, isn't it, Russell? No. <laughs> Teresa, what do you think about all this? Well, I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, I'm, I, I've listened to you guys, and we're talking about, you know, home ownership and strong communities and, and so forth. And, and the thing that's going through my mind, and I, I don't know that there's anything that can be done about it, and, and I wonder if, if this is something that's even, it's an issue that's even discussed. But the thing I hear all the time and the thing that I'm seeing more and more of is there is no affordable housing in North Carolina. D- does anyone see that? Is that oh, is that something? That is a huge, huge issue. And we are devoting more and more resources to figuring out ways to make housing more affordable. And of course, as I'm sure you know, one of the one of the kind of corollary issues related to that is inventory. Right. There is so few houses for sale. Right. Um, it's a very complicated issue. You've got uh, federal uh, regulations and federal reasons for that, national reasons, but you also have a lot of uh, local regulations and zoning laws that really are very prohibitive and burdensome for um, the creation of new housing and for the creation of affordable housing. Huge issue for us. We are focusing more and more resources on figuring out how to make more housing more affordable. That's but good. But it's a complicated issue. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is complicated. I know I ride around all the time, and I see homes that are just sitting there on the side of the road just going to waste. And I just wonder if there isn't some way to incentivize these people to not allow those homes to sit there and go to waste and and create something to where they can make, you know, I, I just hate to see how, I hate to see resources go to waste. Maybe, just, you, maybe you should start, right, a, start a group. Yeah, I mean, we really, uh, we prefer carrots to sticks. We want to incentivize consumers to buy houses. We want to incentivize uh, localities to um, encourage them to create zoning and change laws that will incentivize the creation of new housing. We want to incentivize home builders to build new houses. We want to provide uh, consumers and home buyers with tools and information that will make the housing purchase process easier. There are a lot of different ways, unfortunately. There's no one silver bullet. Right. Um, it's going to take a lot of small actions at the state uh, local and national level to address that issue. Well, at least we know you guys are, are, are working and, and oh, yeah. are aware. That, that's so wonderful to hear. I, I'm, yep. that, that pleases me very much. Well, actually, they have been for years, haven't you, Russell? It's a, it's a long battle. Well, I know, but I think people need to hear it because I hear it I mean, so much. We've been involved in it, but the affordability and inventory issues have recently risen in importance um, I would say over the past four to five years. Um, as the the number of homes available for sale have gone down, and those homes that are for sale are becoming more expensive, you know, which is driven by market forces, which right. we want to recognize, you know. Um, but at the same time, it might be pricing some people out of the market. Yes. And that's the most concerning part. Right. The real key is to um, get people into starter homes. Right. And that's been the one segment of um, housing construction and housing inventory that has been neglected. Yeah. It's really hard. To, you can find a house, no problem, for $2 million. Oh, yeah. It's Ru- really yeah. hard to find a house for or $200,000. Right. Our guest today. That's where we need to focus our resources because folks who get into their first home 
moving their way up the housing ladder. But it's that first one that's the toughest one. Too. Right. Our guest today is Russell Riggs from the National Association of Realtors, our legislative group, and this is Let's Talk Land. Our sponsor is LandHub.com. If you're looking to buy or sell land, LandHub.com previews thousands of properties nationwide. Russell, you know, I went back to our first show, and, you know, we have the annual land conference, and, and we've been doing it and, you know, around the country. And, of course, last year was in San Antonio, and, and uh, it's, at the end, it's in March, end of March, and guess what happened? So in two weeks, uh, the, our staff, our incredible RLI staff, uh, mastered a uh, presentation, which you were part of. And, uh, and then, of course, this year, and uh, hopefully next year, I think we'll be in uh, St. Louis, I think is where we're going. Uh, but um, uh, uh, I just wanted to come back to the points from 2018 and kind of see what's going on with them. Uh, and I'll, okay. I'll list them. It's water rights, of the, and I know you know them, water rights in the U.S. update, National Flood Insurance Program, Endangered Species Act, Unmanned Aerial Vehicles, which is the drone issues, and the Farm Bill Restoration and Torse Tax Reform. Can you go back and address those and kind of bring us up to date? Sure. Well, I mean, 2018 seems like a, uh, a lifetime ago. I was a lot younger. <laughs> yeah, well, me too. But um, sure, let me just um, set the stage. You know, 2018, uh, President Trump had been president for two years, and um, there was a lot of change. He was introducing lots of different change uh, changes into uh, the environment of Washington, D.C. And mainly, his, some of his most important changes were related to the regulatory environment, regulation. One of his signature campaign promises was to reduce regulation on businesses. So he came in, and some of his executive orders were specifically related to um, current regulations that were on the books that he wanted changed, modified, or completely rescinded and replaced. So a couple of those issues that you mentioned, I think you mentioned waters of the U.S., and you mentioned endangered species, and another one. Drones and the farm bill. Uh, yeah, so, so in terms of waters of the U.S. and endangered species, you know, he made a big difference in how regulations were impacting the private sector. And I think the waters of the U.S. is a perfect example of that. Um, there was a regulation that was implemented under the, Obama, under the Obama administration that would have basically had the federal government regulating more waters in the United States. And that's something you don't want, because more regulation means uh, more cost, more red tape, more bureaucracy. You want to reduce that. So what Trump did, President Trump did, he um, rescinded and replaced the Obama WOTUS rule. Um, and the rule that he replaced it with was much, uh, uh, much better. It provided certainty and clarity for what waters are regulated under the federal government and what waters, what waters of the U.S. are regulated by state and local government. And that Trump rule is still in force. That is the one that right now, um, when you try to, when you, um, if you want to do something on your land that requires uh, um, something like you know, have to dredge your river or something, um, or do something on your land, there's a little stream running in the back of your five acres and you want to do something to that stream, um, it's, you can do that. You have control over the, your ability to use your land. Under the Obama rule, maybe not. So that Trump rule is still in force. Now, yes. what Biden has done, so, okay, so he had, he had Trump, he came in, he did a lot of, um, made a lot of changes to the uh, to the regulatory structure of the federal government. Now President Biden has come in and has basically said, you know what, we're going to do a pause. We're going to review all the regulations that President Trump did, and we are going to see if some of those need to be changed, rescinded, replaced, 
modified or done had nothing to done nothing to it. So, uh, in terms of the waters of the U.S. rule, there are basically uh, three options that the Biden administration can take. They could do what Trump did to the Obama rule. They could repeal and replace it uh, and put something completely different in place of the Trump rule. They could do nothing. They could take a look at the rule and say, you know what, I think we're good. We're not going to touch this rule. It's fine the way it is. Or they could do a strategic light touch on the rule. And when I say light touch, I mean they may review the rule, be okay with some of it, but then in some strategic areas that they don't agree with, might try to modify the rule in some specific strategic ways. So they're still undergoing that review, and we'll have to wait and see what happens with the waters of the U.S. rule. But right now, I just want to emphasize, right now, the Trump rule is still in force. Russ, I, I just want to give our listening audience a visual. I happened to, uh, when this happened, um, they had a press conference, uh, President Trump did, and staff, and uh, and I don't know if it's East Wing or one of them, but they brought in, I don't remember if it was one pallet or two pallets. I just remember this big stack on a pallet of paper that went up all the way up to the 10-foot ceiling almost of what the old regulations were. And then there was a pallet beside of it with stacks of paper that wasn't a foot tall. And he says, we've taken this stack or stacks and reduced it to this small stack. I mean, it was incredible the amount of regulations that were cut. It was just, it was mind-blowing. They saved trees. Yeah, I mean, I think he really did a good job in terms of um, reducing the impact of, re reducing regulations in general and also reducing the impact of regulations on private businesses. I mean, that, he really fulfilled his, his campaign promise there. Um, so in terms of the endangered species issue, you mentioned right. endangered species. I did. I think that's another one where they really, there were some, um, a few rules that they passed um, during the Trump administration that, again, would, would lessen the impact of some of these uh, regulations on the private sector, particularly as it relates to uh, endangered species and habitat and where endangered species live. Um, I think right now the Department of Interior, they just... Uh, uh, I believe they just uh, confirmed uh, uh, Deb Haaland to be the Secretary of Interior. The Senate just confirmed her to be the Secretary of Interior. I think right now, again, they're just doing a broad review of, of all regulations and will make a determination at a later time how they're going to address some of these regs, particularly as it relates to endangered species. Okay. National, um, National Flood Insurance? National Flood Insurance Program, right. So um, the Flood Insurance Program, as your listeners may or may not know, is the one program that provides uh, the one federal program that provides flood insurance if your property is in a floodplain. If it's in the 100-year floodplain, you are required to purchase flood insurance. That program has had some issues related to uh, the mapping of uh, the floodplains has been notoriously inaccurate in terms of how they determine whether properties are in a floodplain or not. And so it's always a struggle between the availability of flood insurance and affordability. We want to make sure that people are covered. We want to make sure that um, if people are required to purchase flood insurance, that they can get it easily. Uh, affordability is a tougher issue just because you want to make sure that whatever you're paying, is, whatever you're paying reflects, which is what the case with all insurance, reflects the risk of the house being in a floodplain. Um, and so FEMA has been really, over the years, um, trying to make their maps more um, accurate. Uh, and they've been also trying to figure out ways 
to make their flood insurance more affordable for more people. And that's really where they bump up against an issue of affordability for flood insurance, because we have to make sure people can get it, but they also have to be, it also has to be available and affordable. And you feel like that program is going to continue, right? What's that? You feel like that program is going to continue? Yeah, well, okay. So, um, it, and it's also, there's also a, a time crunch always with this national flood insurance program because they, Congress doesn't want to reauthorize it for a longer period of time. They always reauthorize it for six months or for a year, and then Congress has to go back and reauthorize the program again, and that's where we are. We're looking at this program expiring at the end of September, Okay, which is a problem because if the program expires, people will not be able to get flood insurance unless they pay really high rates from a private flood insurance supplier. So that is the issue. And so the issue is how do we make sure that this program remains financially viable over the long term, but also make sure that they are charging actuarially accurate rates so that you're paying for the risk of living in a floodplain. The other added layer of complexity to the National Flood Insurance Program is, you know, as a person who may have been, um, had some economic difficulties related to the pandemic, didn't have a job, how are they supposed to pay for flood insurance? Right. You know, what pro- what resources are there if you got laid off from your job because of COVID? and your flood insurance uh, premium is coming due. And that's just another, just for particularly for 2020, another added layer of complexity, or 2021. Farm bills. Where are we at? What's, what's that? The farm bill reauthorization. Oh, the farm bill. So the farm bill passed in 2019, and... Um, that's not going to be reauthorized for another five years. Okay, so. So there's really no discussion occurring right now on the farm bill reauthorization. I anticipate that will uh, will start, discussions will start to pick up on that probably in 2022. Our drones. Ru- 2021. Okay. Our drones, Russell, they've relaxed that. But that's very important the drones, to the real, to, yeah, real estate you know, industry. Drones are a pretty interesting issue. Um there's been some interesting regulation recently related to drones that um, they should, right now, if you're a, uh, a, let's just, for example, you want to use a drone in your business, it is fine for you to do that. Let's say you want to, if you're a particularly land, a lot of the land guys use drones to show the, the property off, you know, the geography and the contours of the land. Um, you can do that uh, very easily. You're allowed to to use a drone to take pictures of your property. Right now, you still have to keep your drone within sight. So there are regulations moving forward now that would allow you to um, for it to move out of your sight line. It can go two or three miles away because a lot of these drones now have little you know, they have a, a monitor that you can see where the drone is going. Right. Even if you can't see it with your own eyes. So I anticipate within the next couple of years that you'll be able to fly your drone. If you're doing it for commercial purposes, you'll be able to fly your drone, you know, three or four miles away. The other, and, and that opens up the uh, capacity for drones to begin delivery service. For example, Amazon using a fleet of drones to deliver packages. I foresee that to be happening. That could happen within the next five years. So that could be interesting. Brave new world, right, Lou? Absolutely. Hey, our guest today is Russell Riggs and uh, our chief lobbyist for the Realtors Land Institute in Washington, D.C., 
and this is Let's Talk Land. And we'd like to thank our landhub.com uh, as our sponsor, Sell Your Land, Land of Your Dreams. Russell, this uh, wonderful presentation you did last week, and thank you so much for your contributions and, and your professionalism. It, it, you make things real clear. Um, you called this the 2021 Advocacy Highlights to include the American Rescue Plan, Tax Reform, WOTUS, and Transportation and Infrastructure. So we're going to give you the stage. Teresa, you have anything you want to throw in before we get started? I'm ready to learn. You're ready to learn. Okay. I'm the professor. <laughs> Teresa's the student. And Russell, you're the expert. So you got to teach well, Teresa here. I mean, you guys should feel free to jump in if you have a question or anything. I'm happy to do that as well. I mean, I, so, like, to, I like to have my presentation be a much more of a give and take question and answer kind of format. But um, We can do that. I'd be happy to jump in. But if you guys have a question, you know, let's let's talk. You got it. This is a talk yeah. show. <laughs> All right. Right. Let's start off with the um, uh, American Rescue Plan, Russell. Right. Well, so the American Rescue Plan really built on um, the previous COVID relief effort, legislative efforts that occurred in 2020. There's been four of those. This is really the fifth one. And... Um, it was clear that the economy is still struggling and people needed additional resources. And there's still a lot of people out of work due to COVID, still a lot of restaurant workers, bar workers, small business owners who are just hanging on um, by a thread. And so this will probably be, I'm thinking this will probably be the last COVID relief legislative package. Um, you know, right now, people are getting vaccinated. Uh, states are beginning to loosen their uh, restrictions. You know, here here in Virginia, the governor just announced that, you know, more people can go into restaurants, more people can start going into bars. They're going to start opening up small businesses more. So, so I think over the next couple of months, things are going to really significantly improve as people get their vaccinations. Um, but we still need to make sure that um, that people can hold on until then. And so this is what the whole point of the American Rescue Plan. $1.9 trillion in total. That's a big number. But what exactly did this American Rescue Plan, who did it help, and where's the money going? Well, the biggest uh, the biggest amount was $424 billion, and that went to the $1,400 uh, stimulus checks that people received. That was by far the biggest uh, number. And the, this one-time stimulus check went to people. If you're, if you're an individual and you were making $80,000 or less, you were able to get a of this stimulus check, which they actually started going out uh, last week. And if you are a couple and you're making $160,000 or less, then you would both get a stimulus check. So that was by far the, the biggest amount of money um, that the American Rescue Plan funded. Another really big pot of money was to state and local governments. And this is why it's important for realtors and real estate professionals to make sure that your state and local governments are financially viable. Because if they start running a deficit, who are they going to tax when it comes time to make up that deficit? They're going to tax property. Because that's where most state and local governments get their revenue streams from property taxes. So it's critical that they are able to do the functions that uh, that state and local governments traditionally do: pick up the trash, fill the potholes, things like that, community services, unemployment assistance, to make sure they can do those things. 
efficiently and effectively. Because if they start running the deficit, they're going to turn to property taxes. And that's going to impact realtors and homeowners and property owners. So $350 billion went to state and local aid. Another big pot of money went to um, unemployment insurance. And again, this is the unemployment unemployment assistance that folks who are unemployed due to COVID have relied on to keep their heads above water. And that was to the tune of $246 billion. And one critical aspect of this, see before, if you, uh, before COVID, before the pandemic, if you were unemployed, you were able to tap into this, but not independent contractors, not someone like a realtor. We made sure when the very first, uh, the very first COVID relief legislative package was going through uh, Congress back in March, that we said, wait a second, there's a really important uh, sector of the economy which is not going to be helped by this unemployment um, assistance program. Independent contractors, like a realtor. But you got to help them too because they're just as impacted as a a small business employee or um, a restaurant employee or a waiter or a bartender or someone like that. They're just as they're getting just as hurt as, as they are. So, so the law um, included independent contractors, and that is a really critical part of making sure that realtors can also pay their bills, receive unemployment uh, assistance. I believe now it looks like it's going to be the unemployment assistance is going to be going. You get three hundred three hundred dollars a week extra on top of what you would receive from the state uh, through September 6th. So that should be enough. I'm thinking by September. It'll be after Labor Day. Um, I'm, I'm looking at information that says 75 to 80% of the population will be vaccinated by then. Um, and I'm thinking that by then, the economy will be back rocking and rolling and um, really uh, practically on its own. Another big piece of the COVID relief bill was for um, tax credits and child care and a child care tax, a child tax credit, an increase in that. Because again, you know, there have been so many families hurt by unemployment as a result of losing their job because of the pandemic. And kids are getting hurt too. And so that's another part that also um, is going to be helping the entire economy, going to be helping small businesses, going to be helping everyone to keep their heads above water until things start going back to normal. So I really think that's probably the, the four or five biggest parts of the program, particularly as it relates to um, small businesses. There also, of course, was the, um, the Paycheck Protection Program. And right now, that is also a program that has helped small businesses, including a lot of realtor offices, pay their mortgage, pay their um, employees for a certain amount of time to allow their employers and their employees to um, at least receive a little bit of money, a little bit of resources to keep them, um, keep their heads above water. It has allowed small businesses to pay their bills. And we are pushing Congress to to um, forgive those loans. Right now, they come in the form of a loan, but we are pushing Congress to forgive that and basically just have it be a grant program. Okay. 
What about, um, and, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just want to say another thing, too. You know, we also wanted to make sure that people didn't lose their housing right. during this pandemic. And we're talking about renters, we're talking about homeowners, and we're talking about property owners. We wanted to make sure that people were not, um, because they were laid off, they didn't have any resources to pay their rent or to pay the mortgage, and in particular for landlords to be able to pay their own mortgage. Because remember, it's not just the tenant. It's, it's the property owner who provides the building, who also has a mortgage on that property. That if the tenants aren't paying him, are, are not paying that person rent, he or she cannot pay their own mortgage that they have. And so it's just this a vicious cycle of people being unable to meet their obligations. And so there's another big chunk of money that was going to be provided to renters, homeowners, and property owners so that everyone who's been affected by the coronavirus and the pandemic will be able to, to pay their rent, pay their mortgage, and, and be able to um, stay in their housing, which is another really important aspect of all this. Let's move to tax reforms. Uh, the, 10 yeah. th- the 1031, that's the most important uh, uh, tax uh, vehicle for the real estate industry. What's going on with that? Yeah, it's, it's critical. 1031s are used by so many different um, property owners to exchange one piece of property for another piece of property. And it's particularly used, uh, particularly, and Lou, you could probably even say a lot more about it, um, but it's particularly used by farmers. Yes, definitely. Who are, who are done farming. They're on the older side. They're done farming. Um, they put so many, so many resources into that land. Um, but now they're ready to downsize or move somewhere else, be closer to the kids or whatever. And they can use a like-kind exchange um, to make that happen. And that's and it's not just real estate where like-kind exchange exchanges are used. I mean, that's certainly a big part of it. Absolutely. Lots of industry sectors use 1031 like-kind exchanges to keep the economy going, to uh, create capital, and to create movement across uh, capital areas. So it's really, it, it is a critical piece of uh, the entire U.S. economy. But and the- it's, an in- it's an incentive for people to continuously move, create um, economic development, and if it goes away, it'll be a big problem. Yeah. So the timing but, timing's unclear on what they're going to do, right? Well, that's exactly right. Um, the Biden administration has uh, identified a, a like, 1031 like-kind exchanges amongst a list of a lot of other kind of areas that they would like to reform in a broad tax reform package. So like-kind exchanges, one, there's a whole list of them. The real challenge, I think, for the Biden administration is, well, when are they going to do this huge tax reform package? So they've already done the COVID relief bill. That's done. Um, And so the next big legislative push could be a tax reform package. Or it could be something else, and we'll get into that later, transportation and infrastructure. Um, For me, it's looking like that could be the next big one. They might leave tax reform for a later date. But the timing is very unclear, because remember, um, you've got some midterm elections coming up. I know we're already talking talking about uh, midterm elections, and Biden has only been president for two months. Well, yeah, the candidates are— yeah, the candidates are registering now. A lot of them are registering now for the uh, 2000. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, you know, that's Washington. You're always thinking about the next election. Right. So I guess my point is that the window of opportunity for President Biden to move on a big tax reform package it's closing. is yeah. very small. Yeah, it's closing. And it's closing. Yeah. Because remember, the Senate is only 50-50. It only takes one or 
to a Republican Senate, and then you've got a whole new ballgame. So, so the timing is unclear, but the um, the, uh, the the window of opportunity is very small. Yeah. Russell, in your presentation oh. last week, you talked about Ernst and Young, their micro and macro analysis. What is that? Just review. Right. So what we're doing. So when we start, this is what NAR does and RLI does. When we start looking at a um, an issue that we want to try to influence Congress on, there are a lot of different ways that we we do that. The first way is to create get some good economic analysis of what the issue is um, and how it might impact economically uh, our our interest. So we hired Ernst & Young, which is a big consulting uh, accounting firm, and we asked them to do a couple of different economic analyses. One is a microeconomic analysis of the 1031. And when I mean micro, I mean how do individual property owners use the 1031 like-kind exchange? How do they use them? And then what benefits accrue as a result of them using the 1031? You know, how are they, how do they benefit from that? And then we also asked Ernst & Young to do a macro analysis. In other words, how does the fact that all these people, all these sectors are using 1031s, how does that impact the entire economy? And what kinds of value and benefit accrue as a result of all that economic activity occurring because people are using the, uh, the 1031 like kind exchange. And so that really just helps us build the argument for how important these are to the economy, all the value they add to the economy, and the benefits they provide to individual property owners. And we can go to Congress and say, look, here's how these, uh, these like-kind exchanges help the economy, and more importantly, in your district, Bingo. here's the kind of economic activity yeah. that happened in your district. Here's how it helps the economy in your district. Love and it. that really makes a difference. I bet it does. <laughs> that really opens up. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so... So we uh, have updated that information. We had Ernst & Young update that report. It's a great report. And um, we are uh, educating members of Congress, members of Congress about the benefits of 1031. Because remember, too, there's a lot of churning in, in Congress. You know, staffers come and staffers go. So you have to keep educating members of Congress, keep educating uh, their staff about why these are, these are so important to the economy and particularly to, to their district. Now I know why you get up in the morning, Russell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this is an ongoing... I'm, I'm surprised was, he goes uh, to bed. <laughs> yeah, it's just... He may not. It's an ongoing activity that we do to just continually uh, make sure that all members of Congress know and understand our issues and 1031s is absolutely one of the, uh, the the main ones that we educate them on. Yeah, that billboard in the senator's uh, uh, neighborhood always helps too, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know if we put 1031s on a billboard, but that might be a little complicated. Well, you might suggest that to your absolutely. committee. Yeah, I mean, it's important that they realize that these are, these are very important economic um, Matters of consequence. Uh, moving on to yeah. to waters, we, we actually talk about that um, at the beginning of the show. Any updates on that uh, on your current presentation, other than what we talked yeah, well, about I earlier? Would just, uh, you know, I would just encourage your listeners to understand that um, you know President Trump did um, some amazing things and fulfilled his campaign promises as it relates to regulation and reducing burdensome regulations on businesses in the private sector. Um, and so I think right now, President Biden is taking a look. He's paused the regulatory uh, 
he's paused regulatory action to allow all of his different agencies to review all the different, across the board, review all regulations that occurred during the Trump administration. And then at a later time, there will be a determination as to how they want to proceed, whether they want to, you know, repeal and replace uh, those regulations, whether they want to do nothing, just leave them the way it is, or perhaps modify them in some strategic way. So, so that's really the uh, the phase that we are in right now with the Biden administration, and it is a little bit of a uh, wait and see. But we we are doing a similar educational process with the regulators that we do with Congress. Okay, we are going in. We are uh, letting them know what our concerns and interests and priorities are. Uh, you know, for example, with EPA, that's the agency that I deal with. Um, I'm having meetings with uh, those folks to say, here's what we care about, here's what realtors are all about, and here's what regulations that you do uh, impact uh, and impact homeowners, et cetera. So you need to know that if you're going to move forward with any additional regulations. All right, let's get into uh, transportation and potholes, I mean infrastructure. <laughs> well, potholes is part of transportation. Makes it tough sometimes. Yes, sir. Um, so, so as, I think as I mentioned before, so they've done the COVID relief bill, and now Congress is turning toward the next big legislative package, the next big legislative push, and the Democrats are pushing hard because they know, like I said, they know they have a limited window of opportunity move something big forward. Right. So they are turning towards, I think, the next big thing is going to be um, a big legislative package on transportation and infrastructure issues. Now, in the past, there have been lots of discussions on the opportunity for bipartisan action on some big transportation and infrastructure package. You've probably heard, I'm sure some of your Listeners may have heard about, you know, and this happened quite a bit in the Obama administration as well as the Trump administration. It's Transportation Week, and we're going to show why we need to move forward on transportation, and then you never hear anything about it again. It just, it just dissipates. I think this time they actually might be serious with doing something. President Biden has his Build Back Better plan, and both the House and the Senate are looking at all different kinds of sweeping legislation that would address some of these issues. Now, from our perspective, from the real estate perspective, from the realtor perspective, we cast a pretty pretty wide net when we talk about infrastructure. We say infrastructure could include surface transportation like roads and mass transit, bridges, tunnels, broadband. I mean, how many meetings over the past year um, have been conducted via Zoom or some other video video conferencing technology? How many kids, you know, have had to go to school uh, through their computer? How much business was conducted? by our members, by Realtors, uh, via Zoom, an incredible amount. It's got to be one of the first questions people ask me now is, how's the Internet at this house? Yeah, uh, (laughs) that's exactly right. And so none of that would have been possible without broadband. And if you don't have broadband in an area, um, in a rural area, it's a real economic drag. That's where we live. You know, it's a, it's a big challenge. And so I think the challenge is how do we extend that broadband to as many people as possible in as many areas as possible? So we, t- we talk about broadband. We talk about infrastructure. It has become just a basic necessity of, of the 21st century. We have to have that. We have to have good water infrastructure. We have to have good drinking water. We have to have that work and make sure they drain um, the water off the land. We have to make sure that all that 
water infrastructure, the ability to manage our water is up to date and efficient and effective. I mean, all of these investments would help the U.S. expand the economy, compete, compete globally, recover sustainably, and also create jobs. So that all sounds fantastic. And both Democrats and Republicans love talking about it. They love talking. You know, a lot of these people love, you know, getting into the, the policy weeds and, you know, all these different programs, et cetera. And then you raise the question of how much is all this going to cost and how are we going to pay for it? And the conversation stops. Teresa, how much money you got to, to contribute? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of scared. You know, that's well, that's why they're not talking about it. This I don't think it'll be talked about right now, and I think Russell's dead on. The transportation infra infrastructure is going to be what they're talking about next. Then they'll talk about how much it's going to cost. <laughs> right, but they got to pass the bill, and to pass the bill... they got to talk about how much it's going to cost. <laughs> that's when they start getting into the brass tacks of how much is all this going to cost, and we're going to get some money. And so, um, you know, well... There, there are a few ways to get some of the money, but one way is to um, is the Highway Trust Fund, which, as you know, is funded by uh, a federal gas tax. So when you go to the pump, you pump in 20 gallons, um, some of the money that you're paying is a gas tax that goes to the Federal Highway Trust Fund, which builds roads and mass transit. I think they're already working on that piggy bank. I've noticed the gas is going up. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the problem the problem is that um, that only gets you so far. And I'll tell you why. Because the, the only reason you're using that gas is because you're putting it into your car. Cars are becoming more energy efficient. They're using less gasoline. And more and more cars over the next 20 years are going to become either hybrids or electric. And I think that was one of Biden's things. Russell? Yeah. And that, yeah. I got to cut us off here, buddy. Well. Uh, oh, okay. What, one last word of wisdom no, from, no. one last word of wisdom no, from no. you. <laughs> Support RPAC, I know that. One last word of wisdom. What? Word of wisdom? <laughs> Pray. <laughs> this is to all your, this is to all, all of your listeners. Um, you know, there's a lot of change happening right now in Washington D.C., um, and it always is important for you to stay up on what's happening, uh, contribute to the conversation, and vote. How do they get in touch with you, Russell? Thank you. Great to do it again. How do they get in so touch with you? Five years next year. Yeah. How do they get in touch with you, Russell? Oh, uh, well, my number is uh, 202-595-4203, and my email is rriggs at nar.realtor. Russell, you've been a great guest. Stay with us until we close out here. Thank you for joining us today. Let us know how you like the show. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to suggest, we'd appreciate them. All questions are welcome, and all of our guests may be emailed with your questions as well. The show is for the public, and most importantly, for real estate agents who do not have a source of land education. All of our shows are downloaded after the show today on our master website, www.letstalkland.net, also on Spotify and Podbean. How do they get in touch with you, Teresa? They can email me at teresa.mylandpro at gmail.com. What's your phone number? 336-209-2937. My email is lou, L-O-U, at mylandpro.com. My cell phone number is 336-669-1405. We'd like to thank our sponsor, landhub.com, for our shows. View thousands of property for sale at landhub.com. Brody, how do they get in touch with us at the station? Well, Lou, they can go to our website, go to wkte1090.com, and also they can download the simple radio app. And hear us anywhere in the world and also the universe. Really? Yeah, wow. really. Unfortunately, we are 
Peach music and no reason. What do we play, Teresa? Happy music. That's right. We got get a nice, you in, what? Happy music. Happy. Get you in the happy mood. If you want, well, everybody wants to be happy. That's right. And we're going to make them happy here coming up pretty soon. We got a contest coming. That's right. That uh, we're giving away five hundred dollars to some lucky person out there. Yeah, we're going to tell them how to do it, but not right now. That's right. Just stay tuned. That's it. All right, because we're going to let you know here pretty soon. Also. We uh, won some awards. Yeah, five years in a row being the top radio station on the East Coast. And you won a nice award. Yeah, the Reader's Choice Award uh, for announcer of the year. Mm-mm-mm. Teresa's in the running next, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, M- Molly and Shout is going to jump in on that one. Uh-oh. Go, Molly. Yeah, go, Molly. Hey, we'll see you next week.